It is the 200 level episode 90. Mike Carpenter here on this Friday afternoon before what looks to be a beautiful weekend here in Champaign-Urbana. And before we get started on this podcast with an interview coming up in just a little bit, reminder that the 200 level is brought to you by DP Doe online at dpdoe.com. For all the best deals and prices, check out their menu online and they deliver anywhere in Champaign-Urbana. So whether it's a custom zone or one of your favorites, like a Maui Wowie buffer zone, order online at dpdo.com. Also, 4th and Kirby online at 4thandkirby.com. Here's the deal. You enter coupon code 200 level or the 200 level, you get 10% off your order. And not only that, all year long, 365 days a year, buy two t-shirts, get one free at 4thandkirby.com. And finally, State Farm agent Brian Hansen online at brianismyguy.com. That's Trevor's favorite domain name, brianismyguy.com. For all your life, auto, home, renters, business insurance needs, and they're all local products, all Champaign-Urbana born and raised, so they have your local interest at heart. Brian is my guy. Dot com. Also, Alana Inquirer and the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. And later on in this episode, I'll be talking with Boswell Hudson. Really good hour-long conversation that we had that ranged the gamut from local media, a little bit of sports, a little bit of music, and a little bit of politics. And I'll explain what I mean by that here in just a bit. So we have that interview coming up and a really good time. And I think it was good to speak with Boswell because over the years we have mostly had communication online on Twitter, Facebook, direct messaging, things like that. And I think that what I appreciate about his approach is the authenticity and the honesty. And yeah, Champagne Showers, they have an edge on Twitter, but there's nothing wrong with that. I think an edge is good. And I don't think we here at the 200 level go out of our way looking to add an edge to anything, but sometimes it might inevitably come through. So I just appreciate honesty, whoever I'm talking to, and I think you're going to find that in this interview coming up. Now, full disclosure, sort of like last week, I had an opening segment that I recorded for what would have been the Chuck Aplinsky podcast that got delayed. And part of it was that I didn't feel as if I did a strong enough job on student athletes coming back to campus on June 3rd. I thought, okay, we have Harry coming up on Monday. Why would I rush into this when we have a student athlete or former student athlete that could speak directly to that problem? And I found myself this morning with all the things going on in the news coming back to the same conclusion that an opening segment that I recorded yesterday afternoon, so that's Thursday afternoon, just didn't fit with what's going on. And in this pandemic situation, news is ever-evolving, and it seems as if every time I record something... The next day, something happens that maybe doesn't nullify it, but certainly changes the climate. And that happened on Thursday night. So in Minneapolis, there were all these protests and rioting in the streets for the murder of George Floyd. And that's what it was. It was a murder. For anyone that's seen this video, it is beyond any sort of gray area in terms of policing and what would be considered proper policing. He was murdered by a police officer. And as we just found out about an hour before I came here on this microphone, the Minneapolis, I don't know if it's attorney general or whoever is in that jurisdiction, came down with charges on that cop, third degree murder and manslaughter. So this is moving very quickly. And I'm sure tonight there will be more protests in Minneapolis. There were some in Louisville last night where my friend lives. And I guess those have gotten pretty bad, too. A few people were shot even. So it is a climate in this country right now that... It's only exacerbated by the pandemic situation, but some things are constant. And in America, racial tension is constant. And we just need to call it for what it is. It exists and it hasn't gone anywhere. And unfortunately, it probably won't be going anywhere. Not in this climate and not with the person that's at the top of things 
being Donald Trump, who, as I tweeted this morning, politics aside, I think we can objectively say that Trump is the kind of person that when he sees a fire, he fans the flames. He doesn't try to put it out. That's not his style. He is an instigator. That's part of his appeal to his supporters. Unfortunately, in a situation like this, it is only making it worse. And last night on Twitter, he went so far as to call for shooting the looters, which it seems, okay, fine, you're protecting property. I understand why someone read that and not maybe be troubled by it so much. But at the end of the day, even if someone is looting a store, that is a property crime. And we're talking about a capital punishment, essentially shooting at people when they are not necessarily murderers. So that seems like a bridge too far, even if you don't agree with the rioting part of it. But this led me back to a conversation that we had on Tang Carp, and this would have been about three years ago, I think, when the Kaepernick thing had started, three or four years ago, whichever, and the kneeling protest during the anthem. And this quickly became a hot-button issue, and in East Central Illinois, as I talk about with Boswell later on, you have a confluence of rural and urban lifestyles and perspectives. And I saw that when I was a student in Urbana from K through 12. I saw that at the University of Illinois. I see that now as an adult living here in Champaign, that you're going to get all those perspectives. And I think that's fine. I actually appreciate that. And I enjoy the conversations that I have with people that I wouldn't consider like-minded politically, but I can have a conversation. And I want to stress that, that through even the most tense of times, there are conversations to be had. And I will try my best to not let emotion get in the way and preclude me from having these conversations. But it does take me back to when the Kaepernick thing started. And on the show, I said this, not verbatim, but this was the, the gist of what I was saying about Kaepernick. While I understood people having an issue with him protesting during the anthem and all the symbolism with the flag and the military component of why we do the anthem in the first place, at the end of the day, it was a peaceful protest and I was going to defend his right to do so. So we have that on one end of the spectrum. We have rioting and looting on the other, but at the same time, they are all about the same thing, racial tension. So here I am as a white guy that grew up in Urbana, now living in Champaign, teaching in Champaign schools where the student population is very diverse. It's about thirds all the way, a third white, a third black, and a third Hispanic, Asian, other ethnicities. So it's a very diverse classroom. And I was thinking, what would I do as a teacher if we, one, were in the classroom, which that seems like pretty long ago, and two, if some student asked me about George Floyd and what happened. And I find that if I were to look back through all the times on the radio or even here in the podcast, I've alluded to political or social things going on, but I've never been very upfront about it. In other words, I try to, for the sake of being a pacifist, because I hate conflict. I hate contentious arguments. For the sake of that, I've probably muted my language a little bit and not been direct about it. And what we saw with George Floyd is exactly the reason that Colin Kaepernick was protesting the way he did. We could have a long conversation about the method of protest, whether it's appropriate to do that during the national anthem or not, but it was a peaceful protest. Rioting and looting is not. And I understand why people on its face would look at something like what we saw in Minneapolis last night and flip out about it and say, this is senseless. Why would they do something like this? Why would they tear apart businesses when that doesn't have anything directly to do with what happened to George Floyd? And there's a point to be made there, certainly. But I remember watching the OJ Made in American documentary, and in 1992 during the Rodney King riots, which were sort of a precursor to all the hoopla surrounding the OJ Simpson trial, that you have found relations in Los Angeles County, 
race relations have gotten better. Not perfect, but they have gotten better. So there is a case to be made that rioting actually does serve a purpose. Do I agree with it? I don't know if I agree with it or disagree with it. But we need to stop pretending that there's not genuine anger that is leading these people to do what they're doing. Again, not excusing the action, but I think we need to understand why these things are happening. When you see what happened, in this case with George Floyd, or a couple weeks ago with the Mount Arbery, or I know that was more like two months ago, but when the story really kind of came to the top of our public consciousness. And that joins a long list of guys, Flando Castile, the Michael Brown situation down in Ferguson. I vividly remember that. And as a white guy, it's troubling enough. As an American, it's troubling enough. As a black male in this country, if my skin color were merely different and I was an African-American, I would be much more anxious when I'm out in public. I would be fearing for things that as a white guy, I don't need to. I understand in this community, especially with that rural urban mix that we have, there are many people I know that might be from smaller towns that I enjoy their company, I enjoy their conversation, and still would, even about a topic like this. But what I would try to always go back to is, listen, we can discuss these as much as we want, but we can't truly identify with the emotions that African Americans are dealing with right now. I couldn't even go in front of my classroom and pretend to know what my black male students are thinking about or fearing as they get older into teenage and adulthood, the concerns that they're going to have to face that when I was 12 years old, I never even had to consider once. It just was not going to show up on my radar. It wasn't going to be a problem for me. So in this intersection of sports and politics, Colin Kaepernick doing what he did three years ago just for things like this. And then when you see something like this happen up in Minneapolis, a fairly progressive metropolis, right? I mean, this is known in Minneapolis, Minnesota, sort of like Canada South. You wouldn't think that this would necessarily be a powder keg for race relations, but it shows that it happens everywhere. So where do we go from here? What kind of conversations can we have about it? Should I even be talking about it on a sports podcast? Real quick on that, and I think people that listen to this podcast know, or at least have gotten to know me through radio, podcasting, through Twitter, I don't normally go this route. I don't. But sometimes there's an elephant in the room that needs to be addressed where I could come on here and talk to you about sports things, but right now that's not where my mind is at. So it would be disingenuous of me to come on here and pretend to give you some impassioned opening segment about, hey, did you hear that Iowa might have fans in Kinnick Stadium? We'll talk about that another time. That thing's developing. But right now that's just not where my mind is at. My mind is at a place of genuine concern for what this country is going to look like 5, 10, 20 years from now. And progress is slow. I understand that these things happen very incrementally. And the revolutions, if you want to use that word, which is a big word, they don't happen overnight. And progress, for that matter, doesn't either. I am more concerned as someone that now teaches middle schoolers in a diverse community, so I get to have these firsthand experiences with black and brown students. And then also as someone that is considering, okay, Do I raise a family? Do I bring kids into this world? When it seems like every avenue that I look down, there's some sort of danger lurking. And not in some sort of fear-mongering way. I don't mean that. There's always going to be risk out there in the world. But I look at the general relations between people. I look at the way that people interact with one another. And I look at how this is all exacerbated by political discourse, namely President Trump, but also the people that, listen, if you voted for him in 2016... Okay, I still would like to have conversations with you. I'm not going to judge you based on that. But all these actions, one after the other, 
continually show that this man's MO and what he's trying to do, he's trying to divide the groups of people in this country. It's that simple. And it's troubling. No matter who was in charge right now, I remember there were deaths when Obama was president, and that did not fix race relations. Eight years of a black president did not fix race relations. I don't know if you heard that or not, but it's true. So it's not to say that anybody could be in that White House and make things better. I don't know if that's the case or not. I think these issues are so deep-seated that no leader is going to fix them by themselves. But there are certain leaders that, when in place, can make things worse. And when I see, within the span of a month, essentially, one tweet from Trump saying, shoot the looters, and then one from during the Michigan protest when you had you know, white guys with their guns protesting the fact they can't go to supercuts and saying that the governor of Michigan should have a dialogue with him. That is blatant, blatant contradiction, hypocrisy, whatever word you want to use for it. And he's not even trying to hide it anymore. He knows his base. And to his credit, he is a shrewd politician. I don't agree with much of anything that he does, but he is a shrewd politician in terms of shoring up his base and making sure that his ardent supporters stay ardent supporters. But I would implore people that even if you were a Trump supporter, or even if you still are to an extent, it's okay to support someone as a politician, but also recognize when they do something that is, well, counterproductive, for lack of a better term. And that's what seems to be happening on a daily, actually more like an hourly basis. It's getting exhausting. I remember growing up and listening to classic rock, basically from the era of like 1967 through 1975. That seems to be the golden era. And you would listen to some CCR, and they had, despite all the great hooks and everything, they had some political leanings in their music. During the Vietnam War era, where you watch you know, Platoon and Apocalypse Now and even Good Morning Vietnam, I remember thinking, man, that must have been a really tumultuous time to live through. And even though we don't have a war going on right now in a traditional sense, it feels like this is my own experience akin to what my dad and mom would have been experiencing in 1968. Now, granted, they were teenagers when that was going on, but, you know, if I were to ask them, what was it like back then? They would say, oh, it was pretty crazy. You know, a lot of, a lot of crazy stuff going on. And if I have kids down the road, they'll be, be asking, what was it like in 2020? I'd say the same thing. It was nuts. It sucked. It was a bad year. Let's just call it what it is. Things kept getting worse. <laughs> and I, I don't know what the end game is here. I waffle between optimism and cynicism. I don't know which side of the fence to land on because it seems like every day, and this is without getting proliferated with too much media, I don't watch a lot of TV news, hardly at all. Uh, Twitter, I check it a few times a day for headlines, things like that, but I'm not being inundated with media. So that's not necessarily the issue. The issue is there's a lot of bad crap going on right now. And... As a seventh grader, when I broke my leg, my doctor, Dr. Gertler, had what they call good bedside manner. I'd never heard that term before, bedside manner. But it's true that he made me feel comfortable before I went into two different surgeries or two different operations, and he eased my fears. He said, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to accomplish this, et cetera. And it made me feel much more calm going into it. We don't have that right now. We don't have someone that's going to talk to us as a nation, which is important. You want a leader that can actually talk to you and deliver a unifying message and make you feel like, yes, we will get out of this. Here is the plan. Here's the solution. We don't have that. We have the furthest thing from it. We need to call it what it is. And I spent so many years, a decade now, kind of pussyfooting around this, <laughs> and really more the last four years, 
trying to make sure that I didn't say something that would maybe piss off certain listeners, texters, whatever, because I still wanted the onus to be on, hey, we're a sports show, it's sports programming, we're a diversion sometimes, but we aren't always a diversion. And if I am being honest with myself and being honest with you as a listener, my head is not in sports right now, not with what's going on between the pandemic and between what's going on in Minneapolis and between this being an election year and the most consequential election of our lifetimes, which it seems like we have far too many of those, far too many consequential elections in this short life of mine. That is, it's just a feeling of exhaustion more than anything. It's a feeling of exhaustion. And I hope that this opening segment does not serve to exhaust you as well. That's not my intent, but it is my intent to get this off my chest and hope that maybe it resonates a little bit with some of the feelings you're having yourself. There's no way, there's no way the majority of Americans are feeling good about the current situation right now. Just in general, you can look at each individual item, but taken collectively, this thing has snowballed into a really crap year and really a pretty crap four or five years. I think back to simpler times, you know, 2014. Did anything happen in 2014? I don't know. I can't remember. It was pretty smooth from what I recall. It really does seem like the last five years, beginning with the election season of 2016, things have gotten ugly. They've gotten very ugly. And it is weird to have a platform based on sports and come on here and give some social commentary, but which by no means am I an expert. But I can only speak from my personal experience and how this is making me feel. It ain't making me feel good. So what does that mean for the 200 level? Well, that means that, don't worry, I probably got the social commentary out of the way. We will resume sports as normal on Monday. But there's just bigger things than sports. And while I do want the diversion and the distraction of live sports to come back, also from a programming perspective, I want to be able to talk about games and not just speculate on recruits or are there going to be fans in the stadium or not. It it just seems like that elephant in the room was too large to ignore and I felt compelled to talk about it. This is probably the furthest I would ever go with some sort of social or political thing on the show. But at the same time, I don't think I'm going to shy away from it either because Politics are intertwined in our lives more than they've ever been. And I cannot repeat this enough, and I think it bears emphasizing that I do not judge people based on their political leanings. I don't. I want to have a conversation with anybody that will want to have one with me, whether it be through Twitter or hopefully in the near future at a bar having a drink. That is the best way to do it until you have too many drinks and then things get ugly. But I haven't been in any one of those before in my life. To that final point about having a conversation, a civil conversation, even in the midst of absolute tense civil unrest, which is what we're in right now. I think about Friday night happy hours in my parents' neighborhood and all these neighborhood friends of ours, they're sort of like aunts and uncles, and they tend to lean conservative. And I find that on these Friday nights, if it does go into politics, we end up having really productive conversations. The biggest key being that I know them, they know me. And they know that there's not any personal judgment going on and that we can have an open conversation and that we are not there to serve any other purpose than have a conversation. We aren't even starting with the premise of changing hearts and minds. That's something that individuals have to decide themselves. Very rarely, I would never presume, for example, to change your heart or your mind. That's not my goal. I can only speak from what I think and what I feel. But those Friday night conversations, when they do go into that, which is, you know, 
every third Friday, like every third happy hour or something like that, it's fine. And we get through them and we still love our neighborhood friends like their family. They're as close to family as you can think of. So in closing, whether it be through this podcast or whether it be a tweet that I send out that you reply to, even if I don't engage right away, I hope people understand that I appreciate those different perspectives as well, even with all this. And this was my perspective. Doesn't make it 100% right. But at the end of the day, I hope for, as I think many do, some sort of peace, some sort of resolution where we don't wake up every day knowing that there's inevitably another bad story that's going to be coming out. That we are exhausted by the mere mention of the word politics. Didn't used to be like that. You know, I know they say don't ever talk religion or politics. Isn't that the old term? But it was never this bad. It was never this bad. We can get back to like, you know, 1990s, 2000s political talk. I know it wasn't always pretty, but it wasn't like this. Holy crap. Because we're adults. And I don't want to sell. Americans short. I know that there's a lot of issues that we have, but damn, we've gotten through a lot. I do think we'll get through this, but there's no guarantee that we will unless we actually can open our eyes and our ears to one another and just listen, try to understand other people's perspectives. Even if you don't agree, just trying to understand it. So that's my soapbox for today. I've been troubled by what's going on. Obviously, if you follow me on Twitter, you find that I'm not at all a fan of the way that President Trump's handling this. That might be the understatement of the century, but more than anything, with as much as I appreciate social interaction, with as much as I appreciate other people, whether it be friends, family, listeners, acquaintances, the interactions I would have, let's say in lot 31, which it sounds like that and other tailgate lots may be open in September, those sorts of things shows that we truly do have more commonalities than we do differences. I know that's a cliche that gets thrown around a lot, but it's true. At the end of the day, everybody's just trying to live their life and support the people they care about and just make it another week, make it another month. We all look for joy for ourselves and for the people we care about. We don't want to see anyone that we love or care for in pain or discomfort. All these sorts of things are just the essence of what it means to live life day to day. And yet we get so easily caught up in these distractions and we lose sight of the fact that really, as a species, we are so similar to one another. And when I think about other friends, family, coworkers that maybe I don't agree with politically on a lot of things, at the end of the day, I know with them I could have a conversation just like I hope to have with you. So that is my Friday afternoon ponderings of what's going on in the world. I know it's not sports related, but what the hell? It's a Friday show. I had to get that off my chest. So I appreciate you indulging me. And now we have an interview with Boswell Hudson. So Champagne Showers, is a sort of news aggregate social media presence. You might be thinking, huh, what's that? Well, you can find them on Twitter for one at 217showers. You can find them on Facebook by searching for Champagne Showers. And what they do is they find what's going on in East Central Illinois. They offer some commentary. They make it very easy to digest and read local news. And they add a little bit of a personal flair to it. There's some edge to what they're doing, which I appreciate. And Boswell Hudson is the publisher of Champagne Showers, and we had a one-hour conversation ranging the gamut. It was great to sit down and talk with them, and a lot of the sort of topics I touched on here in this opening segment, we get into as well, with the key word being understanding. That That's what we're trying to reach with people, is grow understandings of different perspectives, and understand that in this community of ours, Champaign-Urbana is a truly unique community. East Central Illinois is a region, very unique, because you do get such a cross-section of perspectives and ideas. And that's a great thing. 
because I could live in a large city, but I would maybe get tired of the homogenized ideology, just like I would if I lived in a rural area for my entire life. I think that this cross-section we have here provides a lot of opportunities for that. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with the publisher of Champagne Showers, Boswell Hudson. It is the 200 level. All right, so for a lot of you, you've been hearing me say that we're part of the Champagne Showers podcast network, but you might be wondering, well, what is Champagne Showers? So I figured let's bring on the publisher of Champagne Showers, Boswell Hudson. Boswell, here's how I want to start. For those that are the uninitiated, let's say, how would you best describe Champagne Showers for someone who is not familiar with it? That's tough. That's a good question. Um, I get that a lot. Uh, I think the best way to kind of conceptualize it, especially in a way that people in central Illinois are used to is that it's kind of like a radio station for the modern times. Um, we have three shows, uh, your show, Elizabeth Hess's I have to ask, which is like a local news and interview. And then champagne is also a band, just kind of like song exploder. Um, but for exclusively local music. Um, so we try to cover a wide breadth of champagne Urbana culture from, you know, everything from art and news to sports. Um, and just kind of from a, in a new way. Uh, we have a lot of radio stations, but we've never really had a collection of, of podcasts. And I think this kind of situates itself to move forward in the 21st century um, as kind of a new media platform for town. It seems like podcast and, you know, the Joe Rogan deal that presu- I guess is like $100 million to go to yeah. Spotify. I mean, it's certainly the direction that things are going. And even as we were finishing Tang Carp on 93.5, we found that podcasts were probably the biggest outlet for people to listen to us. So as you started this network, what was your goal? You mentioned, you briefly touched on that, but as you continue to see it grow, what other things are you hoping to add to it? Um, Yeah, when I started it, uh, I just kind of saw a lane for um, young person media in town. Uh, I worked for Smile Politely for Seth Fine and Patrick Singer. Um, That was my first job out of college. And they are the, the young person media in town right now. Um, but they have a different lane where they kind of cover all sorts of local culture, not as much sports. Um, so I saw a lane uh, kind of as like a young person media platform that interacts with people on social media, for example, um, that uh, is able to kind of have more off the cuff opinions on social media um, and then is able to bring in more modern things like podcasts into the fold or, you know, opinion pieces from the perspective of a young person Um I think that's kind of something that's really been lacking in town. Um, And so I kind of, I hope to be a hub for all of this kind of new media and new way of consuming news. I wanted to talk about local media, the local media landscape, which sounds really official. But the thing is, is you, you grew up in this area as well, correct? Yeah. And I can speak to it too, having grown up in Urbana, lived in Champaign for half my life as well, that... The local media landscape, essentially, when I grew up, consisted of News Gazette 1400 in terms of talk radio or newspaper coverage. And to this day, those are still sort of the, I don't know what the best word would be for it, the bastions of traditional reporting, right? Titans. Yes, yes. (laughs) So what issues do you have with specifically 1400 News Gazette? I've spoken about it on the show, and for me, it is a frustration as a younger person, I guess that they've had a lot of time in with which they could have adapted to some modern media 
trends and just the way things are going and they either refused to do it or didn't have enough foresight to make those changes, it seems to me not very representative of the community. I think that's my biggest gripe with the uh, yeah, News Gazette media. I think that's media. spot on. Um, I think it's not necessarily representative of the community, but it's also trapped in a different time. Um, you know, you uh, every it seems like every two years the News Gazette goes through another round of, of layoffs. And, um, you know, I think criticism of the News Gazette is definitely something that we're all used to. Uh, when I worked at Smile Politely, you know, that was a lot of, of what we did was keeping an eye on the News Gazette, and rightfully so. Um, a lot of people that run the News Gazette have outdated views. Uh, just quite quite frankly, their views don't jive with that of Champaign-Urbana. But what's more, they haven't adapted exactly, as you said. Um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of growth in AM radio and, and newspaper subscriptions nowadays. Now, with that being said, it, it's, you know, easy and I would argue kind of fun to attack the News Gazette. But uh, during this COVID stuff, I've seen a lot of really great work that they put out. And just, you know, for my two cents, I think Ben Zigterman, who's the local COVID beat reporter, is one of the best reporters in the state of Illinois. So they have good staff and they're, you know, they're dedicated. But I think uh, they're kind of fighting a, a losing battle and, and haven't done much to adapt to that losing battle. That's where it gets tough to delineate the staff that are out there in the field reporting and, and doing great work and ownership or the people that have been in those upper levels of the News Gazette media for a while now that you said the word or the term you know, not adapting to uh, not just the community, but really anything that they could do to be more viable. And that's where I have a hard time that anytime I go into it, you said it's a little bit easy to criticize the News Gazette. And I find myself falling into that trap. It's easy to say that Nickelback stinks. And after a while, that becomes not so funny anymore. So what would be something that they could do? You know, I've thought about this and I don't know if there's an easy answer myself, but what would be something they could do, even if it's a small step to become more, I don't know if the word would be credible. I think they have enough of that, but more credible, at least in the context of this community. I think they could do a lot. Um, you know, I think just being able to staff it, uh, adequately is, is very important. You know, you need to have someone that can actually go to the city council meetings and we have two. <laughs> um, and that can go to the county board meetings and can go to all these things and take it in. And I worry that these cuts um, will affect the actual vital reporting that we need. Now, in terms of what they can do to prevent the cuts, um, I would say shifting to almost entirely digital. Everything's digital now. Everyone gets all their news from Twitter. You need to have not only be posting your things to Twitter, right? But you need to be somewhat interactive. Um, so people know that, you know, it's not just a, <laughs> a faceless person uh, putting things out on the internet. Um, they need to be able to kind of associate a voice with it. I don't think we see a lot of newspapers taking personal tones, but I do think that there's a middle ground there between uh, having a personal tone on Twitter and what the News Gazette does right now, which is just, you know, fire every link out there and see what sticks. I look at the stats a lot. I compare my own Twitter page to theirs and their engagement rate is awful. Uh, so they're not really engaging people, but they are putting out a ton of content. So it's, it's a, it's an interesting line that you need to walk, but I, if I were giving them advice, which will never, ever happen, <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say uh, to boost those engagement numbers on social media and start, you know, it could be as simple as making sure your Twitter cards display correctly, you know, um, and it, and it can go deeper from there. 
if there isn't a news gazette, and this is what concerns me, is as much as I might criticize it for faults that I see, and easy to do that from the comfort of my home, right? And, and I, I, like you said, it's tough to say or give them a list, all right, here are five things that if you do this, everything's going to be okay, because newspapers are in a tough enough position as it is. But what would be your biggest concern for the community if we lost your daily paper? I mean, I I know that's probably not going to happen and that, if anything, they'll shift how they report and how often they do it. But what would be the biggest concerns for this community or any similarly sized community if it didn't have a newspaper? I think oversight is the biggest thing. I mean, if uh, and now she's gone. So this used to be my go to line, but I can't say it anymore. But if if we in Champaign-Urbana don't have Julie Worth watching over the U of I, who knows what they're going to be able to get get away with? You know, and same thing with the city. So if we can't send actually send someone to the meetings to take it in and report back and, you know, trust that they're going to report it, you know, as a journalist would, um, then that's uh, that's a huge problem. And, you know, I can sit and tweet stuff all I want, but it's none of it's worth anything if we don't have someone reporting the facts first. Um, so, you know, it's it's vital for us, uh, I think, and in, in mainly in oversight way more than anything else. You mentioned personal tone in terms of their Twitter content and or, or lack thereof, right? I mean, it's very mechanical almost. They got a story, they put it out on Twitter. And even I myself am trying to figure out my niche on Twitter seven years into it, you know. But for you with Shambana, why do I keep saying that? We talked before. <laughs> I'll give a quick plug to where I got this from. Shambana Weather is Andrew Pritchard's weather website. And for some reason, when we started this interview, before I hit record, I was calling it Shambana Showers. It is not. It is Champagne Showers. And I knew that. I don't know why I'm slipping on that. But you get to have some fun with that Twitter content. What is it like or, or what is the difference for you in being able to tweet through the avatar, let's say, of champagne showers. I can somewhat relate if I'm doing banned content and I can do things through the name Decadence that I would maybe not as quickly do under my own guise. So what are some of the things that you're able to have fun with with that? Uh, well, in a similar way, that's kind of how I learned to do it. I used to manage a local band called Terra Terra, um, like probably like five, four or five years ago. Um, and, uh, that's like the first social account I managed and it was just kind of cool being able to take on this new voice. And I saw, you know, it, uh, if you talk in certain ways, it opens up different opportunities. Right. Um, so, uh, what I've done with showers, is just kind of built a way for me to talk about local stuff with followers who are interested in that. So if I know that the follower base is interested in that, I know that they're going to engage a lot more, um, and so, you know, that makes it okay for me to fire an off the cuff take. Like I think yesterday I tweeted about how uh, it doesn't make much sense that University Avenue has a lane closed during a pandemic, right? <laughs> by Carl. Um, and like, you know, things like that, I can tweet that out. And I know that everyone that follows Champagne Showers is going to be interested in seeing that because they're connected to town in some way. If I do it from my personal account, you know, there are a lot of people that don't care, a lot of people that'll get annoyed. Um, so it's kind of, it's I hate to use this word, but it's like brand building. Sure. Um, and just like, you know, find your lane and stick to it. I found it was easier for the 200 level Twitter to do that when there's actual games going on. And we could. <laughs> yeah. I bet. <laughs> it, yeah and, and that's the tricky thing that I'm dealing with right now is figuring out, well, the 200 level Twitter is essentially just here's the new episode. And I'm finding it harder and harder to find those sort of intermediate tweets that might keep the presence up. So. What kinds of tweets specifically get the most engagement? 
Um, I don't know. I, that's a really good question. Uh, it really just depends. Anything contentious locally um, does well. I also blog um, and my long form articles typically perform uh, better than just a tweet just because there's more thought put into them. Uh, one of the ones that performed the best, which was really goofy, was I wrote a blog post about um, mayor, the mayor of Champaign fighting with a council person about buying Girl Scout cookies. It was a bizarre story. A bizarre story. <laughs> just, I love that because Champagne is this uh, huge, it's like a mixture, right? It's micro urban is the word that they use, but it's yeah. really a small town. And so like you have the mayor and this council person who are beefing and their Facebook posts are public. Like, do you think Lori Lightfoot would have public Facebook posts? And not only so public, but profane. It was amazing. Yes. Honestly, I was floored. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's things like that, right? Where you try to wedge that small town aspect into kind of a, you know, we are a broader community. There are a lot of social media users here. So it's a, there are a lot of people that it could apply to. So that's the line I walk is trying to find, you know, things that are funny enough, but haven't been totally covered by the current media in town and uh, are a little bit, I don't know, edgy or goofy, I guess. Yeah, and that's that's a fine line, right? And what I find myself, and this has been for the decade or whatever I've been doing either radio or podcasting, and then when I did get that Twitter account seven, eight years ago, I can't remember the date specifically, but you know, trying to find that line between edginess and it's not that I'm afraid to get personal, right? I think sometimes people need to be held accountable and naturally it will become personal. So do you find yourself in any sort of those situations where there may be a public figure or a politician who is doing something that you deem to be uh, not in the best interest of the community and you have a tweet ready to go and then you pause and is there a sort of check that you give your own tweets to say, all right, this is just the right amount of edge. This is too far over it. Is there a litmus test you kind of have for that? Yeah, sometimes. Uh, not as good as I uh, hope sometimes. Um, but it, that's something that I have to be really cognizant of is that it is a small town. You know, if I take a walk with my fiance, there's a, a chance I run into the person that I tweeted about. Um, but my personal justification for that and how I how I reconcile it in my own mind is that I'm willing to have a conversation with anyone. Even if I do fire off a glib tweet or something, anything's a conversation. I think if you look at my Twitter account, it supports that, you know, I'll reply to anyone. And, and uh, as long as it's not like overtly like racist or classist or sexist or something, I'll uh, engage and we'll have a conversation. I learn stuff more often than not. And I think, you know, the followers I disagree with would, uh, would back that up. Someone you might want to talk to about that is Austin Burke. <laughs> we go at it pretty frequently. And, yeah. Uh, I respect him. I think he respects me. You know, we just, it's, everything's a discussion. Always. And being able to partake in some of those conversations at the radio station with Austin, always a pleasure talking with him, even if we don't agree on something. And that does seem to be lost in it, right? Is I would find through the text line or even now through tweets, if I say something that is political, even if I thought that I phrased it with as much nuance as possible and it isn't overtly partisan, that there will be some that will turn out to be a good conversation. In the case of uh, one I threw out last night about the MLB Players Union and their position in all this bargaining, which I'm siding with them, and that probably gives you a clue politically where I'm at. But at the same time, it turned into a good conversation. So you said anything overtly racist, classist. Will those, those, will you just, will you mute? Will you block? What's, what's the method with that? Or just ignore? 
No, I usually put them on blast. Uh, quote tweet. Okay. Um, that's, <laughs> that's my go-to. That is a powerful tool, I think. Because what it can't, and, and this is where it gets tricky, right? Is the furthest end of that spectrum would be doxing, right? Somebody does something bad and then you're like, all right, let's sick them. And then everyone starts digging up information about that person. Uh, but is there a way that we could use Twitter or social media to, I don't want to say correct somebody or, you know, give them, give them a, you know, cyber spanking, so to speak, for lack of a better phrase. But what do you hope to achieve? Because I do the same thing. What do you hope to achieve when you do put someone on blast, so to speak? Um, I think I just want to point out that this opinion and this talking point that this person is using is, you know, been proven false. Uh, usually when I put someone on blast, there's some sort of proof that comes along with it or some sort of uh, metaphor that um, reveals to me at least how absurd what they're saying is. Um, so there's always a goal just to illuminate something for the general public. Uh, it's not just taking pot shots for pot shots sake. It's trying to inform why it's wrong or why it's problematic. Um, and that might be done sarcastically or via a joke, but I, I hope that everyone takes something away from it. At least. Back in March, and I think it would have been March 11th, that Wednesday night when the NBA suspended their oh, season. the day everything changed. The day, I mean, truly. I mean, it really felt within a two-hour time period. I went into band practice at 7. I came out at 9. And we were prepping for a gig in April. And when that band practice ended at 9, I had this inkling that, all right, I don't know why I'm going to see you guys again. And it's amazing how quickly that changed. So I do recall, though, from the Champagne Showers Twitter that you seem to be a little bit in front of this. And you also were very vocal about your concerns for the rural communities. You grew up in Monticello, correct? Yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. What concerns linger as we sit here towards the end of May going into June about rural communities specific to them that maybe don't uh, are not considerations for a Champaign-Urbana or even a larger scale like Chicago? Sure, definitely. I think uh, just thinking about it um, as growing up there, right? If you grew up in Monticello like I did, where'd you go to your doctor's appointments? I went to a little clinic in Monticello, right? no emergency room, nothing. If anything serious had happened, it would have been a 30-minute ambulance ride to Urbana. So when this whole pandemic came along, uh, and you're right, I was, was a little bit ahead of it, but I'm, I was a little bit due to just like Reddit obsession, but uh, and it turned out to be right that this pandemic turned into a big global thing. Um, but just thinking about those things and about the healthcare system that we had in place growing up um, and looking at these numbers and seeing, you know, there are no ICU beds at Kirby Hospital in Monticello, zero, period. Um, so if someone needs an ICU bed, they're going to be driving to Urbana, right? And that's a 35-minute drive. The paramedics have to go both ways. And one way, they have to be working with a COVID-positive patient. So just the resources that these rural areas have don't nearly match the need for even a small outbreak. Luckily, we didn't get to the point where any of the outbreak overwhelmed a lot of these rural health systems. Um, you could see it did in Alabama. Just last week, the Montgomery, Alabama, I believe mayor, um, had a news conference where he said they're out of ICU beds. They're taking people to Birmingham. That's a very real possibility at a lot of these uh, rural hospitals south of Springfield, mostly, um, where 
a lot of the hospitals have between one and five ICU beds. After that, it's a 40 plus minute drive to the next biggest hospital. Um, so there was a lot of possibility for these things to be overrun. Um, luckily though, like I said, it didn't really get to that point. And I, uh, I still feel a little bit bad about um, kind of pumping that up, uh, kind of fear mongering, but I do still think it's a very real concern. And, you know, if a second wave happens, it doesn't take much to overwhelm these facilities. Uh, if they only have between one and five beds, I mean, that's like, it's like one small nursing home outbreak is all it's going to take. Um, so I think, you know, these, these areas have to be really cognizant of the really thin margins that they're playing with. And that's what scares me the most about it. You use the word fear mongering and that's a strong, strong word. And I don't think, I never interpreted it as such. And given the time and the context of what was going on, I think it was only fair to exercise caution and err on the side of being overly cautious. However, as we sit here, I find myself not waffling. I don't want to say that like, well, you know, I'm, I'm like the state representative. What's the guy's name? Daryl? Darren? Darren Bailey? Darren Bailey, right. clown. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that's just blatant. I, I don't know if he's trying to get pub or what, but you know, not wearing a mask into the General Assembly or taking something like this to court. And, and what's unfortunate about things like what he did is that it does hijack a genuine conversation that can be had because life does have to, whether it's return to normal, to use that overly used phrase, or just to get people working again or to be able to hang out with your friends and family, there are gray areas. In fact, most of the areas are gray. So... Have you found yourself evolving in terms of, okay, what what works for you or uh, the foreseeable future for those in your community or those just in your general circle of friends and family? How have you changed? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have. I am evolving, absolutely changing all the time. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I was really scared there for a while. I didn't leave my house for a, a very long time. Even, you know, we stocked up on groceries and just sat still for about three or four weeks. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, I think you have to evolve, you know, obviously things are going to improve. They're going to get better. And that's, that's where I have my own personal issue is that exactly what you said earlier, you know, this, uh, I ride this line between fear mongering and, um, actually being, you know, an adequate amount of cautious. And, uh, I think it's as time has gone on, um, my need for caution has dropped a little bit. Uh, I feel comfortable now just going out and, and doing things. And uh, I think the general population kind of feels that too. I'm sure, I'm sure you feel more comfortable, you know, are you going to go to the bar this weekend on Friday? I'm not going to camps. That's not on the docket as tempting as it is to get a blue guy, but you know, and that's where it gets tricky, right? I'll see the video from the Ozarks and I don't get it. I wouldn't do it. Well, let me, let me rephrase. I wouldn't do it. But to an extent, I get it. If I think of my 20-year-old self and how, yes, even with my parents or even with friends and family, I unfortunately would probably be acting more in a selfish manner because I know that my own health risk is that much lower. And as a 33-year-old, I find it to be even more tricky because my parents are both you know, mid-60s. Um, there are people I know with underlying health issues. So for me, it's not a concern of getting it myself, whatever. And there's a part of me that wants to get it and get over, get it over with, you know, but it would be not knowing I had it and giving it to someone I cared about where it could become an issue. 
So I, I just find that the unknown with this and the indefinite timetable, it's kind of scrambling my brain where if someone said, well, what do you think we should do? I wouldn't have a good answer for it. And that's why I find myself getting less outraged about something that maybe a month ago I'd get really pissed off about. Um, but at the same time, not condoning what happened in the Ozarks, because that's a bit extreme, I feel like. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, the governor's plan has been pretty good um, relatively. I mean, we're, we're going in to have an open stuff in two days. So uh, I think it's very interesting to see how it's all evolved, just to see how it's gone from, uh, I don't know, the, the mainstream right wing has gone from being, you know, kind of unified, cautious to being like, we need to reopen now. And now, you know, you could make the argument. Darren Bailey refused to wear his mask on the state house floor and, and got kicked out. Right. And is, is that the next frontier of, of opposition to this? It seems like every time something goes according to plan for Pritzker, right? So he set this bar or like he set the four regions in the state. Well, the regions are too big. He set this bar. Well, it's not quick enough. You know, all this stuff. It's just, it's hard to say what the next frontier is. And, and that's, frustrating right because the next frontier could could just be uh the the fatigue from this to the max where people just don't care about it don't want to acknowledge it ever again don't want to wear their mask whatever and i think that's still really harmful um but i just i think i've evolved on going out into public you said your parents were mid-60s mm-hmm. mine are yeah. too i have old parents have you been seeing them yeah a couple times where we've met in their patio Last two Saturdays, take a little cooler over there, hang out for a couple hours outside. Haven't been in their house. You know, we make sure to use the restroom before we leave the house. We don't have to use theirs. All that sort of stuff that I think as time goes on, you'll gradually relax those. And it's all, you know, it's up to personal comfort too. So whether it be them or really, I don't know if age even matters that much. I think there's going to be, you could open everything up. But I think that overestimates how many people are truly comfortable saying, all right, well, then I'm going to go to this restaurant and then I'm going to go to that movie theater. And then I don't think that's how it's going to happen. I think it's going to be very gradual, regardless of how quickly things open up. Did you uh, I know you talked about this on the last pod. Um, any any more thoughts on uh, U of I's plan to to bring fans in the stadium? You think they're going to bring them in? Yeah, and it, I guess Iowa came out today and said that they're feeling good about Connect Stadium having fans and that they got tailgating options coming up. <laughs> Here's the thing. <laughs> if if Illinois basketball started in September, right, which I care far more about than Illinois football, just plain and simple, or for a better comparison would be if my July 10th Rage Against the Machine show at Alpine got moved to September, okay, I'd probably go because I've been waiting for that for 13 years, right? With Illinois football, even though it's a five-minute walk from my house, I'm watching the game on my porch, you know? And the most I could think of maybe doing is tailgating in an open lot on the corner of Lot 31 with a few other friends. But uh, I think if they're doing it to just have a protocol in place, fine. It seems a bit presumptive, though, to think that you're going to be able to even have 20,000 people in any given space. How do you get those people in safely? Are you conducting temperature checks? And then, as Trevor, I know, has thought about, well, those 20,000 people are going to leave, and they're, they're going to the grocery store, they're going to the gas station, they're going to the restaurants. And it just seems like an unnecessary risk when you could play. It's already a risk to bring that many guys in the same locker room. So why don't we start with that? 
and then maybe we'll get to the fan thing. But again, I don't, is that me being overly cautious? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I, I think it it's a really it's going to be really interesting to see what the university tries to do, um, especially with you know because these are student athletes and they have to live under that moniker. Um, in theory, if you're going to have the athletes back to campus, you have to have the rest of the students back too, right? Well, and that's what we discussed, and Harry had a great take on it as a former student-athlete himself, which that moniker is so transparently BS in a lot of ways. Yes, they are students, and yes, they are athletes, but what has happened is the NCAA has tried to romanticize that idea and try to distract people from the fact that football and men's basketball players specifically bring millions of dollars into their institutions. So that's the other thing, is even for my wife who works at the U of I and all the uncertainty they have for just going back to work. I'm thinking, wow, we're, we're telling these student athletes that you're more important than any other student. You're more important than faculty and staff. We're bringing you back first. To me, that is an indictment of the NCAA. On the other hand, as frustrated as I am that Illinois was one of the first, I didn't want to be a trendsetter with this necessarily. I also understand that for Josh Whitman, you can't have, you can't be the one Big Ten school to say, now nah, we're going to wait until August, and then you're just unprepared, and you stink, even though that may happen anyway. So I, there's, I get the on-field and on-court risk in terms of performance by not bringing them back, but it's just uh, transparently wrong. I think it's just ethically wrong to say that you come back first. Yeah, you know, I think if if they were getting paid something and they had some sort of collective bargaining agreement where they could work this out um, and have it be fair and just and agreed upon, uh, that would eliminate a ton of the problems. But the NCAA is intent on uh, no collective bargaining rights, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, and that's why the professional leagues, the NBA in all likelihood will come back, and that looks like they got a plan. The players want to come back, but their union gets to represent their what they think and their health and safety, and then, of course, the compensation baseball that's going to be a tough road to get across unfortunately but at least they have union representation these kids don't they are told it's voluntary but as we talked about on monday no it's not if you uh, want to I spot was, in the two deep you are not you it's not voluntary at that point yeah i was listening to the uh a local um radio show this morning about this and uh they mentioned the voluntary thing and there was no no one even questioned it Everyone just accepted that, oh, yeah, it's voluntary. Like the students that want to will come back or the players that want to will and the ones that don't won't. No. Hey, that's not how it works. That's not how <laughs> it works. lose your starting spot. For an 18 to 22-year-old as well, I mean, in all likelihood, they're going to come back. They probably feel a lot more comfortable and just with the age and the fact that they probably want to get back with their friends and their teammates and just get going. And so I understand that. And I don't fault any of those players or the coaches necessarily. To me, this is just a situation where – Maybe I'd be better with it if Josh Whitman came out and added something at the end of his statement that said, listen, is it ideal? No. Are there risks? Yes. But as an athletic department, you know, for our on-field and on-court performance, it's essential that we do this. As long as there was an acknowledgement, if I could get that out, that, yeah, this is a little bit tricky. And, and instead, it seemed like, all good, and it's voluntary. That seemed to be the buzzword that they hope would, and if you listen to it on, which station was it this morning, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, it was SJK. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the voluntary word stuck out like a sore thumb from the minute I read it. It just seems yeah. so, it's an empty word. It doesn't mean anything. No. 
I'd be I'd be really interested to see uh, what the players say amongst themselves or what the coaching staff have told the players. I think that that'd be telling. With sports hopefully coming back, the other thing I mentioned was, okay, I'll go to a sports game whenever, but I can watch that from the comfort of my home. But live music is the thing that I miss the most, whether it be performing it, and we had some things lined up this summer, or to be honest, more going to shows. And that's my summer routine. Part of the reason I went into teaching, don't like, this is going to sound a little crazy, but it's true. Summer vacation. I can go to all the shows I want to. DMB, right? That's your uh, DMB that's your is my our, our summer thing with my dad and a group of friends and this tailgate crew that's like eighty plus. It just blows up each and every year. But uh, Rage, Rolling Stones, and uh, Smashing Pumpkins was going to be in April. Now it's in October, but that's probably not going to happen. But regardless, live music to me is just the most cathartic thing. You know, I can go to a sports sporting event, and if my team wins, it's it's cathartic. Sometimes a live music event seems to always be cathartic for me. What is the future of concert going? I mean, is it just like anything where we gradually get more comfortable even with the risk and it resu- resumes as normal? Or are we entering a new sort of reality for live music? I don't know. Live music in Champagne was in, in a pretty bad place uh before this and it's hard to imagine it getting any better at least for a while um it's i don't i don't know what an artist is thinking right now you know like for you for example uh who had shows booked this summer like uh you can't even plan for the future you don't know when when a venue will be open not that we had any venues anyway um it's true yeah very few uh, you know, it's just, it's a very tough place. And I, I've seen people adapt. Um, I've seen a lot of local bands do get into like, you know, I think Sven actually has Sven over at the other mm-hmm. podcast on the network has a huge backlog of people that want to do interviews now, for example. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the blog is uh, sponsored a virtual rap cipher, stuff like that. So that we're trying to keep the community going, but as far as live shows in a building, it's really hard to think of because, you know, a lot of times you're trying to get right up to the capacity as a former show promoter. That was my goal. I wanted, I wanted the room at capacity. And that's the thing that's on the chopping block right now. That's not until like phase 1 billion that we get 100% capacity. left. So you were at the management level, right? You were managing Terra Terra for about four or five years. Is that correct? Yeah, I did Terra Terra. Um, we did, three tours to the East coast and then a few like regional tours to like Wisconsin, Iowa, and Missouri. Um, and then after that I worked for, when I worked for smile politely, I also worked for Pygmalion. And at the time we owned, um, or co-owned the Accord, right. which was the high dive space. Um, so yeah, I, I was pretty, pretty into music there for a while. Kind of stepped away from it now, but, um, just because it's, it's so hard, man. It's so hard. <laughs> well, and, and this is good, though, because as an artist, I, I'll send out an email to any venue. And if it's my original band, Decadence, I know we aren't going to make a lot of money. I'm okay with it. We all got day jobs, so whatever. We're doing it for fun. For the Tom Petty tribute thing, you get a little bit more money because people will pay for music they know. Exactly. <laughs> but I, I found continual frustrations dealing with venues because from my perspective, I think, well, my proposal is totally fair. I just want to make sure my guys get a fair cut. But I also understand that there's a reality to the business, that it's a hard enough business as it is. So what did you learn as uh, someone working 
with venues and managing an artist about the realities of the business pre-COVID-19? Yeah, even before the pandemic, absolutely. It was hard. It was really hard. Um, the, you know, especially those tours, right? If you go on a tour and you're a local band, you're playing a show in Akron, Ohio, and you got to make, you know, $60 on a Tuesday night or else you're not getting to Pittsburgh or whatever. Sure. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's really tough. And then especially Champagne is in a really tough space also, and it's due to so many things. Um, like for one, being a small town surrounded by other similarly sized towns that bands could go to. So now we get passed up for tours because they choose the Castle Theater in Bloomington. Yeah. If it's a big band that can sell a lot of tickets or they might play in Peoria or they might play. Well, those are pretty much the only three. Um, but, uh, you know, that's really tough. Um, we've had a really tough time with venues closing. Uh, my very first gig ever was spending my junior and senior year of college. I spent every Thursday, Friday and Saturday night at Mike and Molly's mm. um, helping to produce the shows there. And, you know, some nights we'd have bands that I would have to have to say, you know, we didn't make over expenses at the door tonight. I can't pay you anything. And that's the maybe the toughest thing I've ever had to do in a job ever is sure. tell someone that they do not react well, usually. Um, and so it's always been an uphill battle. And that can be due to due to the size of this town. Due, I think a huge factor that no one talks about is the way Champaign-Urbana is laid out. If you go to any other like Big Ten college town that has a music scene, they have a campus town and a downtown and they kind of butt up to each yes. other. So you get this like intermingling. If people go out, they go out to one like neighborhood and everything's walkable. In Champaign, we have three downtowns. They're all a mile apart. So, you know, take the bus or, or get a bike. Um, and it's uh it's really tough because all these scenes, you know, you rarely get a kid from campus to make the short journey to downtown Champaign, or you rarely get someone from Urbana to make that journey when they could see, you know, a show at, in their own downtown. So I think we're geographically disadvantaged there also. Um, and then the third thing <laughs> that is, well, there's a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of factors going against it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think, you know, venue owners, um, to the third point, uh, have been not willing to embrace things as they've changed. Um, you can say this for a variety of reasons, uh, but, you know, there are genres that are persecuted against in town. Hip hop is persecuted against in Champaign-Urbana. That's a yeah. that's a fact. I've seen it with my own eyes. Um DJs a lot of times are persecuted against in, in Champaign-Urbana and people don't, you know, don't like the crowd that they bring in, um, which always gets an eye roll from me. Uh, and, you know, you have, you had, when we had venues, you had venues that would completely blacklist an entire genre for, for no reason other than the stereotypes associated with the genre. Yeah. And so until we think bigger, until we uh, can centralize it, um, I just, the, and amidst this whole pandemic thing, just the future of live music in town is, is pretty bleak. And I don't, I don't mean to sound like a downer, but I just don't see a way it can, it can expand or grow or anything. Yeah. It was tenuous at best beforehand. And even as I was trying to book one show, one show for decadence or comeback gig, which again, what does that mean? I don't I don't know, but we were excited about it, but there was only one place I could go. And we had it on the books, and I'm just hoping that that place is still there. 
on the other side of this thing. And um, it, it's sad because I, you know, not to everyone gets nostalgic for the early days of whatever band they were in. And when we had Cowboy Monkey in Memphis on our, our rotation in Champagne Urbana was Cowboy Monkey, Memphis on Maine, and then the summer Mike and Molly's outdoors. And that was enough for us. And now in ch- downtown Champaign, you know, you got Neil Street Blues. They're trying to do something. Clark Bars doing acoustic-based shows, but they aren't big enough for full bands. And then Cowboy Monkey is a Mexican restaurant now. And Memphis on Main is and the Accord are going to be a wedding venue, as if we need more of those. And But I also financially understand why some of these you know, owners of these spots would be making those choices. So I can't fault anyone because I know there's not a lot of money in the music business anyways. I just wish we had a sort of daddy Warbucks in town that just said, I love live music and I'll take a loss on it, but let's build three unique venues all around town and see how it goes. That's not going to happen though. No, but I think that's exactly, you know, that would be a panacea for this if we had some, and I've talked to Seth about this a lot, um, but we need a philanthropist. Or philanthropist. Philanthropist. Yes. <laughs> well, don't worry. Earlier on, I couldn't say acknowledgement, so this it happens. <laughs> Here we are. Um, but that that would be something that would really uh, save us. Like, for example, did you know that um, you probably know this since you're a townie, but that uh, tattoo shop across from the art theater, mm-hmm. there's a beautiful theater in that building behind that tattoo shop called the Rialto. You can Google it and see all the pictures. It's still there. I had no idea. Right. And if, if we had someone who was altruistic and also had a lot of money, right. um, that there could be something really great here. And uh, something else I want to touch on, you mentioned nostalgia earlier, um, but really I do think like quantifiably the CU music scene was really good from like 2000 to like maybe 2015, 2010. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it was the envy of, of like a lot of micro urban again, communities around uh that that we could have a small community that was so dedicated towards music and we had polyvinyl here and we had bob andrews at undertow and we had all this stuff going on and then uh it seems like it just right when i came of age (laughs) it all just kind of went away yeah it's like for our band in the early days i mean you know i listened to all recordings we i mean every band early on kind of sucks but it right when it felt like we got pretty good that's when it started drying up a bit. And to be honest, that was part of the pivot to, well, and not, not that we don't enjoy it. We do enjoy the Tom Petty tribute band and we try to make the songs our own a little bit. We got great musicians with it, but we felt like, all right, you know, if we're going to go through the hassle, cause that's the other part of it. Playing a show is not just the hour and a half or two hours you're on stage. It's the rehearsal time, which that's not so much the problem, but loading in, loading out the hours, right? Just the hours and how late you're going to be up. Cause I'm more of a, you know, wake up at seven, go to bed at 11 sort of person. And I'm thinking if you just told me that every Saturday night I could walk into a venue and everything's already loaded on the stage and all I have to do is plug in and play, I'd do it every Saturday of my life. But it's the other factors where even for bands, it becomes, all right, what are we doing this for? Are we doing it for fun? Are we doing it for a little bit of money? And for some, three PBRs. Yeah. <laughs> Drink tickets for PBRs <laughs> and well whiskey, and that's about all you're going to get. Um, so you have also been a freelance writer, and we had you on Tan Carp, uh, I think two years ago, for a story that you did about Cairo, Illinois. Spelled Cairo, but Cairo, at the very southernmost tip of it. And the socioeconomic issues are, are just 
abound in that community. It's it's a sad story as a community, but uh, how basketball was one of the few things that sort of kept that community tied together. For those who have not read that, I know we pubbed it on the show a couple years ago, but for those who haven't read it, what is that situation in Cairo and their basketball legacy? Sure. Well, Cairo uh, was facing a, um, and this was, I'm trying to think when this was, February of 2018, I believe. I don't know if that's right or not. That sounds um, right. I think the story came out in May and the, the I followed the team from February on. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's this very small town at the very tip of Illinois called Cairo. Uh, it was a huge civil war base. Um, Ulysses, S., Ulysses S. Grant had like, I think, 30,000 Union troops there because it was a spearhead surrounded by Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Pretty much since the Civil War, it's been depopulating uh, to the point where now it's about 2,500 people and it had a peak population wow. of about the size of Urbana. Um, and now it's half the size of Monticello. Uh, and so uh, when this housing crisis was going on, I also noticed that Caro had a really good basketball team. Uh, they were beating teams that were, you know, Marion, Heron, these big Southern Illinois towns, uh, teams from Paducah. Um, and so I followed them on the like sort of tail end of their season into the playoffs and then followed this one star player in particular as he got a scholarship uh, to Lincoln College over in Lincoln. Um, and it was a really interesting way just kind of to mix sports and like a very relevant national issue. Um, and it was just lucky that I found it, that, that it's right here in our backyard. Yeah, it was a story that kind of reminded me as someone that watched The Wire on HBO. And what I loved about that show was how it got into all the social obstacles that we're facing. And, and that's Baltimore. That's a metropolis. It's, it is a bit of apples and oranges. But um, with that community in particular down in Cairo, which... You know, growing up, all I knew about it was in the News Gazette on the weather page, it was the southernmost tip of Illinois, but I didn't know anything about the actual story. When you're writing something like that, or when you're reporting on it, what is the biggest draw for you as a writer? Um, Is it the human story first? Is it the larger macro social kind of stuff going with it? What is something that attracts you to a story? I think I take the... um take the national issue and then try to find individuals who have been most affected or most uh, have the interesting or unique story to tell. Um, I was working on a story before this whole pandemic hit uh, for a publication that I will not name since it did not come out, Uh, (laughs) but it was about a soccer team in Arcola. Um, And, you know, their issue is that Arcola has a huge immigrant population. Um, it's because of the broom factory and the immigrants come from Mexico from a town where the same kind of, uh, broom corn is grown. So Hmm. it's skilled labor that's coming in. It's not illegal immigration. These are not migrants. They're people that have set down roots in Arcola. And now Arcola is 40% Hispanic, but the school board refuses to add a soccer team. Their club went to a tournament last summer, the biggest tournament in the USA and won and got, uh, praise from like Landon Donovan on Facebook and stuff. And yet the school board in Arcola refuses to add a soccer team. So it's like something like that, like finding a bigger issue, like racial divide or immigration and distilling it into like, what are the effects of this? Well, this culture loves soccer, but this town loves football. They, they butt heads and there's the story. 
Very interesting. Okay. And this is something I had no idea about, and it's a 30-minute drive south. And that's how close it is to this community. Um, I guess the last question I'd have for you, and back to the rural idea, is that as someone that grew up in Champaign-Urbana, my dad grew up in Paxton, my mom grew up in Bonville, so they know rural communities, even though my mom went to school in Champaign. And I have an affinity, I understand and have an affinity for rural culture, or I guess I should say the rural lifestyle and why people are attracted to it. Uh, When we go visit my wife's family up in Michigan, it's a small community about 20 minutes outside of Ann Arbor. And I get it. I understand why that would be an attractive place to grow up and raise a family. So with your experience, you probably find this mix of admiration for aspects of rural living and aggravation with others. How do you balance that? And and on what side do you find yourself ending up when you kind of weigh the pros and cons of rural lifestyle and rural perspectives? Yeah, absolutely. My family is also from around here. Uh, my mom grew up in Southern Illinois in a town called Harrisburg and okay. then moved to uh, Olympia Fields, which is a south suburb of Chicago, mm-hmm. and my dad's uh, Monticello County. Um, so, uh, you know, I have always loved small town America. I just... I think it's the perfect place to, you know, for all of its diversity that it's lacking and viewpoints that it's lacking. Um, I think uh, small town America is pretty much the quintessential way to grow up. Um, you know, I live down the street from my good friend, Jonathan Hedinger, who used to be a writer for the News Gazette. Mm-hmm. Now he's out in Montana. But, you know, I would ride my bike to his house every morning and wake him up at 9am. You know, you're not doing that really here. And, and, uh, you know, we had a whole block of friends that would just roam the streets on in the summer. It was amazing that that was a thing that that even happened. Uh, but you know, you have to make an effort as, as an adult, I'm realizing you have to make an effort not to fall into that because it is enticing and it is really cool that you can have your own insular world but you have to be able to challenge it. You have to be able to stand up and say things, you know, when things are wrong, you have to stand up to the herd and the mob mentality because that's a very real thing in small towns. And that takes a lot. It takes a lot to be the one red herring or like the one liberal in your high school class, right? It takes a lot. Um, But it's really worthwhile because when you stand up to those things in a small town, you then get confidence in yourself. And that's, you know, if I grew up in Monticello, (laughs) <laughs> or if I didn't grow up in Monticello talking smack to <laughs> all my right-wing colleagues, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have the confidence to do what I do now. I wouldn't have the confidence to, to believe in myself and write about politics and stuff like that. So I think as long as you challenge yourself to, to see the world as a whole, a small town is, is a really, really great place to be. And that's how I reconcile it. I just always keep tapped into something bigger than just the, the tiny community than just the, you know, high school or whatever. That leads me to one more question, actually, before I let you go, is when it comes to politics, I think it became clear over my time at SJK and on TNJ or Tane Carp, and it would usually be through a stray comment here or there. I always had to be judicious about it, but it became pretty clear that, okay, you know, Carp, that's how he thinks. And for depending on who the listener was, they either were cool with it or they weren't so cool with it. But I would always try to speak, if I did, on issues like that, with uh, removing emotion the best I could and trying to make sure that I said it in a way that would lend itself to conversation. 
So as you work on champagne showers or as you are engaged in a conversation, whether it be online or in person at a bar or out, out and about, what approach do you take if you know that the person that you're dealing with is maybe a complete 180 from you on that political spectrum? I have a really funny story about this. Um, are you familiar with Spotted and Shambana? Yeah, I am. It's, so it's, it's like, something else. Yeah. I followed so it for morbid curiosity. I had to check it out. Similar. Uh, but every small town around here has a similar Facebook group. So in Monticello, that's the Monticello Community Forum. Um, and uh, as you can imagine, uh, it's not a very friendly to outsiders place mm-hmm. or any view that challenges the right wing. Um, I'm sure all these small, St. Joe, Paxton, whatever, all these small towns have the same thing. Uh, but, you know, I actually took initiative one time. There was a guy named Michael Beam who I really have come to enjoy. And, and he's a very smart and thoughtful person. I would have never learned that if I didn't respond to one of his comments and say, you know, this is wrong. And, and like 40 comments later, we got to let's meet for a beer. Hmm. And when that happens, I think that's that's the most the most important thing you can do to to be able to understand someone's point of view is actually sit down and try to learn why they believe what they believe and where it differs because it stays together. You know, <laughs> Republican and Democrat opinions stay together until a splitting point on most issues. And if you can find out where that is and identify it and see what the actual differences are that you have with the person. I think that's the most valuable to me. That's where I learned the most. Yeah, I remember when Obama held the beer summit early in his first term between the cop and I think it was a professor at a school at Massachusetts, maybe. Yeah, Boston. oh, it was the guy that got arrested for breaking into his own house. That's right, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I remember the beer summit and you know some people kind of lampooned it, but I thought, well, I don't know. I mean, it's a little bit idealistic, but it maybe it actually works. And it, it's cool to hear that anecdote that you had there about, um, you know, for example, there are a good group of neighborhood friends that I've grown up with forever, and they are most certainly conservative. But on a Friday night, if I pop over to their happy hour, it can actually lead to some really cool conversations. So I think that if we this is going to be I'm not trying to be Pollyanna here, but if people realized, as you mentioned, that there are those commonalities before the inevitable splitting point that if you start there, you can usually come to some sort of, if not agreement, understanding. And uh, I think it's it's worthwhile. It's just all too easy in, in 2020 on election year to just immediately hate the other person. But someone said this about um, Trump, and I think this holds true. You, you can hate Trump, but don't hate the person that voted for him, because that's just counterproductive. I don't know if that's, that rings true to you, or if there's a there's certainly probably a line there where there are certain people, no matter the uh, politician or political leaning, that you don't need to like them. They, they might just be despicable people. But uh, I thought that was an interesting point, too, where you, know, you don't need to like the politician, but try to enter any sort of conversation not disliking the person that might have voted for them. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one of my best, uh, best friends from college who I still chat with every day is uh is a a trump supporter and you know (laughs) looking at my twitter you might not think that we can have a have a conversation or get along but we can you know everyone's just posturing uh everyone's just trying to trying to say like the best thing on on social media i think that's a very good barometer um and i think conversations are, are a way better barometer for trying to understand someone 
Boswell, what is next for Champagne Showers? I got my own podcast. Uh, I built okay. a, had, <laughs> I've been building my uh, studio here in my back room. Uh, I keep forgetting stuff. So like I'll get one thing, like this time it was a headphone splitter for monitor headphones. Mm -hmm. um, but I got that, but then I didn't have the right cord to like connect it to my audio interface. It's a whole yes. ordeal. Oh, it's, it's insane. I've never, for like managing bands and stuff, you know, you'd think I'd actually pick something up, but I got nothing and I'm just like a chicken with his head cut off right now. It took me until this pandemic to figure out how to actually do interviews. And, I, and it was, all it was was a splitter that I just had not put two and two together. Now I got it. So I think I'm set up for the foreseeable future. So you got a podcast coming out. Uh, is there a date on that or are you just in the preparation phase? Still preparing. Uh, I hope to get a couple interviews recorded just so I have a couple in the bank when I go live. Um, but I think next month is, is what I'm shooting for sometime in June. Champagne Showers podcast. Is that going to be the name? Yeah, I think so. I okay. think I'll just use the same logo I have now. I like it a lot. I can speak to the other podcast on the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. I have to ask if Elizabeth Hess is excellent. Anyone that listened to her at 1400 back in the day, she was, uh, I'll be honest, the highlight of that morning show. And then also Champagne is also a band with Sven. I've been on both of them and it was fun being on them, but I am subscribed to both of those. And anytime a new episode pops up, I listen to it. So it's, it's cool that the 200 levels part of it. I, I appreciate you letting us be a part of this new media, I guess you would call it. And I think it's a community that sorely needs some new voices. And I'm, I'm appreciative of you kind of taking the lead on that. Yeah, I mean, I'm just as appreciative, I think, in the opposite direction, because without you guys, I don't really have anything. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a lot of fun to do it, and it was fun having you on the show. We'll do it again. If you ever need a guest for your podcast, I'd love to come on, too. I just enjoy hopping on anything, and, and sometimes it can be a relief to not always talk sports like we did today. So, Boswell, take care, and uh, again, it's at 217showers on Twitter, at 217showers, and the Facebook page, just search Champagne Showers. They'll find it there, too, right? Yep, absolutely. Excellent. Boswell, thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Appreciate right. it. Take care. All right, so that was Boswell Hudson, the publisher of Champagne Showers and the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. And he is someone that over time through Twitter, uh, through Facebook, I think there might have been a few direct messages as well, have gotten to know much more online than face-to-face. -face. And the cool thing about these Zoom interviews that I do with anybody is that you get to see that person as you talk to them, as I just did here with Boswell. So that was a lot of fun. And certainly we went off the sports path a little bit. But I think in this time of no live sports, what the hell? We're, we are going to try some new things on the 200 level. Next week, for example... An old journalism professor of mine. Actually, I don't know if I had a class with him or not, but I know that I spoke with him uh, through my college career and a little bit afterwards as well. John Paul, who was on WCIA Channel 3 for 25 years, he's going to join us next Thursday for a kind of wide-ranging discussion about media and news media, which... Yeah, is it sports? Yeah, it's not. But hey, let's all branch out a little bit. And don't worry, every single podcast, even if you only want the sports, I will always at least give you an introduction segment only on sports. I promise you that. So we will hold true to our promise to be a sports podcast while branching out into other areas. All right, a reminder, the 200 level brought to you by DP Doe online at dpdoe.com for all the best deals and prices, dpdoe.com. Also, State Farm agent Brian Hansen online at brianismyguy.com for all your insurance needs. So life, auto, home, business, renters, you name it, brianismyguy.com. And finally, 4th and Kirby 
online at fourthandkirby.com. Use coupon code 200LEVEL or the 200LEVEL for 10% off your order. And all year round, 365 days a year, you buy two t-shirts, you get one free at fourthandkirby.com. Also, Alana Inquirer and the Champagne Showers Podcast Network partners with the 200LEVEL. I was about to say the relaunch, but we are well past that. It's like 50 episodes 50 plus episodes since we relaunched this thing. So I don't even need to say that anymore. All right. Have a great weekend, everybody. We will be back on Monday with Harry and Trevor as always. And enjoy what looks to be an absolutely gorgeous early summer weekend. Take care. It is the 200 level. Level.